Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode eight of Finding the Front. This episode, we are very privileged to have on the show the Managing Director and CEO of Pilbara Minerals, Mr. Ken Brinsden. Ken joined Pilbara Minerals, stock code PLS, in 2016 as CEO when the company was a startup lithium explorer. This week, after some seven years at the company, which has now grown to be a leading ASX 100 battery raw materials company, he announced his intention to step down from the MD and CEO role by the end of 2022. Ken earned his stripes working for some of mining's household names over his stellar 25-plus year career before he joined Pilbara Minerals. In this fantastic conversation, Ken delivers some fascinating insights into his upbringing, being an underground specialist, his time as an integral part of Atlas Iron, and the opportunity to lead and build Pilbara Minerals into one of the world's leading lithium raw materials suppliers with a really exciting portfolio of growth options as the demand for battery raw materials increases. This really is a great story with some awesome insights. So without further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce to Finding the Front, Mr. Ken Brinsden. Ken, fantastic to have you along. Pleasure to be with you, Tim. Looking forward to it. Great, great. We've been doing a few episodes on finding the front across different metals and commodities. We've covered off on gold. We've looked at iron ore. But here we are. We're going to progress through to the, the ultimate battery stake of lithium. Yeah, the mineral du jour. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, we're really excited. It's going to be fantastic. So, Ken, just wanting to move back a step and discuss a little bit about where you came from. I noticed in your background you, you went to school in Epping. Yeah. In yeah. Sydney. Ep- Epping of all places. But that sort of belies the, the family history, which is really sort of steeped in, in Kalgoorlie tradition. As to how I ended up in Epping, that's a bit of a longer story. But yeah, the family, very much, you know, deep Kalgoorlie roots. Mum and dad born there, grandfather, great-grandfather. Is that right? Yeah. And that's where the kind of molecule of mining must have got into my blood because, you know, even though I was born in Sydney, I, I, well, who knows as to how it happened, but must have been in the blood because I ended up back in Kalgoorlie and in the mining game. So. so what did your parents do? Or should I say your grandparents to start with? Yeah, yeah, well, both grandparents on my mum and dad's side were involved in the mining industry. On my mum's side, my grandfather was... Well, he was an electrical engineer and worked on the mines, but ended up being a lecturer at the School of Mines. So, wow. yeah, I knew about the School of Mines, you know, from the age of two or three. And then on my father's side, yeah, they were really into the mining game. My grandfather and my great-grandfather were both mine managers, you know, on the Golden Mile and, and at one stage through the US as well. Yeah, so it was all there, just not present in my mum and dad because, you know, sorry, getting back to your question, yeah. you know, what did my mum and dad do? Well, my mum is a, is a concert pianist and a librarian. 
And my dad, he was also an electrical engineer. Right. And that took them over to the East Coast? Uh, no, travel in between. They left Kalgoorlie having finished high school, went to university here in Perth. And, right. And, you know, their romance blossomed, married. And then the honeymoon was the commencement of their respective careers. And they went and worked in the UK and the Netherlands or Holland at the time travelled the world and then ended up back in Australia in Sydney and of course that was where I was born and, and my sisters were born. So you're a family of five? Actually yeah well no six of us. Four six? Ki- four kids. Yeah. Four kids. I've got three sisters yeah <laughs> so I'm the only boy. Growing up with the the three sisters would have been a bit of fun? Yeah no they looked after me for sure. Good on you. Epping is in Eastwood up in the northern corridor of Sydney. Yep. How did you enjoy going to Epping High? Yeah, Epping Boys High. First Epping Public, then Epping Boys High. I don't know, school was was school. You know, I wasn't really passionate about it and I've never really considered myself to be that great a student, Tim, to be honest. But bumbled my way through through school and did, you know, all the classic subjects and didn't really enjoy that many of them. (laughs) And actually, by the time I'd got to the end of high school, I was really sort of, you know, second-guessing what I was going to do. And, And mum and dad, you know, to their credit, they sort of, you know, kept encouraging me and you'll find what you want to do. And I applied for unis in Sydney and in the scheme of things, I think that went okay. I was offered a, a place at Sydney Uni in engineering and, and as soon as I got the letter, Tim, I knew I didn't want to do it. And Isn't I, that interesting? Yeah, and I just thought, nah, if I stay here, you know, I'm going to rot on the vine, I reckon. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be a rat bag. I was always a, already, already a bit of a rat bag, but I just thought if I'm at home, I, you know, it's just too comfortable. I, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to find myself kind of tied in knots. And that led to a bit of soul searching. But over a couple of weeks, I had resigned myself to the fact that I was going to go to Kalgoorlie and I was going to go to the School of Mines. And, and when I said to mum and dad, I really, actually, this is what I want to do. I think I want to go to the School of Mines. They, it just blew them out of the water. I could imagine. Yeah, well, I'd Here never talked are. about it. Yeah, Here well, you uh, are in Sydney, yeah. born and bred. Yep. Born yep. and bred Sydney cider. Yeah. Gone through to year 12 at Epping, yep. Epping Boys High, and then making the career choice to then say, I'm going back to the goldfields. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, a bit of a weird sort of confluence of events. I think the, the fact that I'd always been exposed to Kalgoorlie and Western Australia generally, you know, as family, we travelled there. Lots and lots of trips driving across Australia. That was kind of our, you know, biannual holiday. And that, you know, that exposure, it must have been worth something because actually I really liked the idea. Once I'd convinced myself it was the thing to do, I I sort of never really looked back. Packed up my car, drove to Kalgoorlie. And off you went. So you really didn't look back, Ken. You really have not looked back. (laughs) When I look at your, uh, your resume is just phenomenal and you've just gone from strength to strength. So the celebrated WA School of Mines has some fantastic alumni that you went through, I'm sure. Can you give us a bit of an insight into that? Yeah, well, the School of Mines is just such a great venue for your entree to the mining industry because you're immersed, well, especially at that time, because you had no choice. You went to Kalgoorlie to go to the School of Mines. You've got a few more options these days, but it was Kalgoorlie. That was it. You go. And, you know, from day one, you're deeply immersed in the mining industry. You're living in town, probably working. You know, most of us in some way, shape or form worked in the industry while we were studying. And it was the full package because you had the sort of academic piece going on, but you also had this really important cultural piece, kind of 
getting you attuned to the industry and what makes you know the people tick in the industry and you know integrating with the average kind of you know plant operator and, and all that is just so so valuable and i think that's one of the reasons why you'll see the school of mines graduates excel you know they're, they're tuned to the industry ready to fire from day one it's not quite the same as picking up a graduate from somewhere else around the world who you know the day he arrives at your mine is the day he was introduced to the industry yes School of Mines gave you a pretty healthy dose of four years of it. It is really, really valuable. I would argue that's what the School of Mines excels at. Yes. Having a cohort of, of graduates who are already prepped for work in the mining industry, and that's what makes them valuable from day one. And the, the, the alumni that you have, have, there's been some massively successful people that have come out of the WA School of Mines. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I consider myself really lucky to have lived and worked with, you know, some of those people. You know, really good mate, David Flanagan, we, you know, we met on the first day at, at college, you know, he was my neighbour. Yeah, we carried on like pork chops and, you know, did all the wrong things, but out of it, you know, again, just got this incredible experience, you know, four years that was invaluable, really. We'll get to David at some point further down the chat, but I think when we look at life with you, it seems to me that coming out of the School of Mines, you became destined to be an underground specialist to start with. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, deliberately so from my point of view. Yeah, I really uh, had a passion for the underground mining and was really keen to, to progress and, you know, go through those classic, you know, learning elements, you know, underground operator, air leg miner, shift boss, and eventually one day maybe make it as, a, as an underground manager and deliberately sought to achieve that and jump through those, you know, hurdles in the earlier part of my career and considered that first stint of work with Western Mining as being a really important part of career growth because, you know, WMC at the time had this incredible portfolio of, you know, underground assets that you could work at and learn from and take on a whole heap of different roles. So, yeah, that was job number one. Just going to that, you ended up at Olympic Dam in your first role. Now, if we just move sideways for a moment, you met your lovely wife, Fiona, through the School of Mines experience or just post. Did the two of you go to the Olympic Dam? No, we were doing, yeah, we were doing the remote relationship, right. Tim. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that was painful. Yeah, so to go back a step, meeting Fiona, that, well, another lucky stroke, I think, Tim, that, that one. Fiona was friends with some common acquaintances in, you know, the fourth year of university and they came up, they hatched a plan to come to Kalgoorlie and, you know, have a great weekend, participate in the School of Mines kind of end of year ball, graduates ball it's called. And lo and behold, who should I sit next to at dinner but Fiona. Yeah, so we got to know each other over the subsequent months. But of course it was, at that stage, it was just a matter of months before I was going across to Olympic Dam. Yeah, at that stage, no such thing as fly and fly out really. No, so I was no. going to I was going to live there. And, um, and that's why I was asking just to see whether Fiona was lucky enough to join you to go to Olympic <laughs> Dam. No, no, nothing like that. No, no, we did the yeah, we did a remote relationship for the best part of two and a half years actually. In right. The end. Yeah, but worth the investment, Tim. Definitely worth the Fantastic. investment. Fantastic. Well, you've gone on to have three beautiful kids. Yeah. Again, one of the another one of those lucky streaks in my life, Tim. That's for sure. Ken, you've got two girls and a boy? Yep, two girls. They're, they're the eldest and the youngest boy. He's just finished year 12. Yes. 
Yeah, absolutely blitzed it. We, you know, we didn't see that one coming either, Tim. So the family's full of surprises. Yeah, no, he's good. And the girls, yeah, well down their own paths now too. The eldest, Ellen, she's a graduate in public health and about to go back for a master's. And the middle, Miller, she's a dancer. Yeah, she's in London studying dancing. Yeah. Wow, that's brilliant. She didn't get the dancing from me, Tim. I can assure you. That <laughs> <laughs> came from mum. Yeah, well, yeah, must have. Oh, that's great news, and thanks for sharing that. Just back to this Olympic Dam, what an opportunity to go and work on the biggest mine. You're really looking at the copper plate within Olympic Dam and understanding the underground structure within that. Yeah. Were they the takeaways? It was the first job out? Yeah, first job, labourer. That was very much the mode of operations. You'd graduate and you'd start you know, digging drains. And that's what I did, yeah. Really, really valued that experience that WMC gave me. And you're right, it's a huge mine. It's become even bigger since, but at that particular time, they were rapidly developing shafts and underground crushing chambers, and it was incredible to watch it all unfold. Huge open stoping, mass blasts. It was a, it was incredible experience. And again, yeah, I consider myself really lucky to have been involved. And this was all under the Western Mining yeah. banner. Because yeah. BHP took it over in 05. I was, I was reading that, Subsequent to Western Mining, BHP have something like 700 kilometres of underground roads and tunnels. Yeah, it's a phenomenal mine. <laughs> that, that mine will still be going in 120 years. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Western Mining becomes a bit of a theme in your life, but we'll come yeah. back to it. The household names you ended up working for after that period, Normandy, Central Norseman Gold, Goldfields, yeah. and, and went then Western Mining as well. I come back to Western Mining because one of the themes I've seen to pick up is it's really created a centre for excellence for employees that have come out of that almost school of, of training. It's a really good way to put it, Tim. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure I could really grasp the sort of the reasoning other than to say you'd heard that WMC was a good place to be a graduate and get some experience, and that was absolutely my experience. You know, I think I was very, very privileged to have had that opportunity and it did give me some fantastic exposure. Coming out of it underground, very much sort of my thing. We were, you know, doing some really innovative stuff over the years. The first paste fill, you know, junction underground back in the day. Yes. Geotechnical challenges, which have become a much bigger part of the goldfield story over time. Yeah, we were breaking a lot of new ground at the time, trying to make those things work. And he spent a lot of time in Cambalda. Yeah, so post the Central Norseman time, about another three years in Cambalda. And yeah, Junction Underground, no, no longer operating, but a phenomenal mine back in its day. But as it got deeper, it was geotechnically challenged. And, yes. and we had, you know, that, actually that was a bit of a formative time in my career because, you know, we were getting up in front of the underground miners explaining what was going on in the mine and in a manner of speaking, convincing them to go back to work because the mine was very active. It was popping and cracking. You know, stopes would be, be collapsing and drives would be squeezing and we were building, you know, yielding bolts and shotcrete to, you know, hold things open. Yeah, it was an incredible time. And, and the reason I say it's formative is because, you know, we were, in a manner of speaking, forging a new path. We were completely changing the shape of the mine development to suit the geotechnical conditions and we were implementing paste fill and, and all these innovative structural controls and trying to convince the workforce that, you know, we had it under control. And, and sometimes that wasn't easy. 
so that's one of the reasons why it was really formative in my career was just being straight up front with the people that you're working with to say yep we understand this challenge or no we don't in which case we should back off yeah really interesting time one of the things that strikes me with underground is the safety aspect how does that play in your role is developing the mine and the structures within it safety is paramount because as you've just highlighted the workers have to have faith in what you've constructed to get in and go and operate and do their role Can you just give us an insight into that from an underground perspective? I remember when I was growing up, I went to Cambalda and looked at the underground. Give us some insights into it. Yeah, again, reflecting on what happened to WMC, and I I feel like I was lucky enough to be involved and part of it. They'd had a raft of fatalities. Right. And they were pretty widespread across the organisation. It was a very, very uncomfortable time for the company. And they you know, deliberately went down a different path and they launched what they called the Fatalities Elimination Task Force, I think it was called. And it called for some really fundamental changes about the way that we operated the mines. So a really basic example was that we implemented meshing everywhere. Everything was going to be meshed as it was developed, which means you're installing with your ground support, you're installing mesh to stop rocks that would otherwise fall between rock bolts you know, right. falling to the ground or yes. otherwise impacting people. It was a real uproar from the workforce saying, hang on, that slows us down. We're going to be impacted in terms of our ability to earn you know, a wage and or it's just a stupid thing to do. You know, There was a lot of backlash. But what emerged was really interesting to me. What it forced was a completely level, level of discipline about the way the mine worked. And it became more structured, more planned. There was less rework. And the net effect of it was, in fact, a better mine. Yes. And a safer mine. Or, the other way around, a safer mine and a better mine. It was really incredible. And, again, really formative experience for me because I just came to appreciate that some of the things that you're doing here are sophisticated in the sense that it's building a much better operating platform. And even though at first blush, you know, might think that you're spending more money or you're taking more time, well, actually the net effect of it all was a better, more productive operation that was also safer. Just fantastic experience to be involved in. Oh, this held you in great stead going forward. Yeah, I really got, you know, a kick out of that time and and experience in, you know, management at a relatively young age. And it was really looked after by some key people too. So, yeah, I consider myself really lucky to have worked with some of those amazing people. Yeah, look, it's um, a fantastic insight into into your heritage before you decided to go on a different tack. But with that mining management of underground, you then decided, well, look, Aluka provided an opportunity and that ended up taking you to Victoria where you developed the Murray Basin. So, yeah, you're right, sort of turning left when I'd been previously turning right. And I guess the thing that was going through the back of my mind there was a bit of a changing time for the family. And if we were going to move again, you know, we should try and be you know, constructive about how that's going to work for, for the family as much as it from a career point of view. Yes. And the project had about six months to run in Perth before we all shifted to Victoria. So that gave us the chance to see the last son born at that time and then make the move to Victoria. So from my point of view, yeah, it was all about a slightly different set of experience, but at the same time being able to set the family up and take advantage of, you know, whatever the next location was going to be to yes. live. I was really keen to get some greenfields development experience as well, having typically been involved in brownfields mining, you know, either expansion or development. So that represented a really good opportunity. 
a spin-off that arose from that time was, you know, we bought a, a small farm and Fiona went out and no sooner had we turned up, you know, the next day, I kid you not, the truck rolled up with the, the cattle on the back and <laughs> and we had the, uh, I don't know what it was, 15 or 16 steers out the back and uh, we really enjoyed the time there and another really valuable learning about the interplay between you know, mining and how that impacts in both a positive and a negative light in respect of the communities within which you work. So one of the really valuable pieces of experience to come out of that time with Aluka was just how good a job they did at working with the community. Yes. We were mining in and on people's farms that they'd owned for 160 years. And Aluka had done a good enough job to convince them that it made sense. We could get in there and mine and we could rehabilitate and hand the farm back to them and and who knows, maybe the farm would be better. Yes. It was really incredible, an amazing experience. What made it even more special was that this was Malcolm Fraser country. You know, this is not the back blocks in the goldfields. They'd never seen a mine. So to have done that job, to have established a reputation that allowed them to get on with the work, create jobs in the community and ultimately work on people's farms was pretty incredible and very, very valuable experience to have been involved in. Well, I noted to that point that was it you personally or Aluka received the Streslecki Award in Victoria for Excellence in Community Relations? Yeah, no, that wasn't me. That that was the team. That was the team, yes. And just incredible. Yeah, they had the model down pat for the ability to get to know people, to make them feel included in the process. Yes. The extent to which the whole team was invested in community engagement on a very regular basis, you know, both formally and informally and created a great environment. Now, that doesn't mean it was always perfect. I don't want to give you that impression, but to have got those jobs done in that area, which is really beautiful, by the way, rolling green hills, incredible pasture, and and, uh, Mallee country, you know, just incredible. Perfect for cattle. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) We got the job done, ran the mines, and I think as it would stand today, they've probably, the farms have been handed back and I'd, I'd imagine it's gone well. So, uh, yeah, so a great experience to be involved in, Tim. Yeah, oh, really valuable. Wonderful. So you look back there and this is a pretty pivotal point because we're now at 2006 and you've now become a specialist in underground. You've gone to Aluka. You've done a, some $300 million development in Murray Basin. You've understood the community relations side with Aluka. You've got a great source in which to draw upon and here we start the journey in earnest of you joining Atlas Iron. Yeah. And this is reconnecting with your old buddy, Dave Flanagan. Yeah. And this is a journey now that was really fascinating because Atlas became a very well-known company and then it leads into Pilbara as well. And just like to understand what brought you back from Aluka or from Victoria and then, or to start with Atlas, and then maybe we can just sort of talk through that in a bit of detail. Yeah, well, David and I, as you'd expect, we'd always kept in touch and talked about the potential of doing something together one day. And he rang me out of the blue, actually. I, I was not really expecting the call. And his question was, oh, can, what can you tell me about where I can find a mining engineer? You know, I think we've got something here at Atlas. It's a different model, but I need somebody to come in, have a look and see if we can make it fly. And, yeah, I, you know, I sort of said, yeah, okay, mate, I'll have a think about it and get back to you. Yeah, I, I had to think about it over, who knows, maybe a week or two. And it was at that time where I started to get the inkling that there was a boom either coming or it had started or, you know, it was, the industry was really starting to warm up. 
And uh, I was thinking to myself, okay, well, I'm here in the Murray Basin, you know, really well settled, got a fantastic, you know, the farm is beautiful and and a great job, but we're a bit removed from that. And if you're going to be in amongst it, you really need to be in Perth. And I rang David back and I said, well, does the mining engineer look like me, you know? And he said, yeah, I reckon. So... (laughs) So, yeah, we talked about it a bit more over a couple of weeks and I went away and had a look at what he was up to and I agreed with him. You know, I thought there was a different model that could emerge in the mining game in iron ore, you know, classic iron ore mine, huge scale rail based on, you know, very, very large scale deposits. But at the same time, there's all these other smaller stranded deposits that might yet be economic. Why not try and create, you know, aggregate up those resources? So yeah, we chipped away at that and David in his inimitable style was able to raise a lot of money to support the ongoing development. We tested a few highs and we tested a few lows along the way and in in the end built five mines in five years and ultimately hit about, I don't know, in the range of sort of 15 to 20 million tonnes per annum and I don't think anyone really would have imagined that was possible based on the resources that we were mucking around with. You started out in your earlier days within Atlas as operations manager. Then you moved into COO, chief development officer, and you really were a part with David of taking it from a junior explorer to a producer through that time. What did you find that was, when you look at it, Atlas was originally, correct me if I'm wrong, was originally Atlas Gold. Yeah. yeah no, and, then it, and then it moved into Atlas Iron. Yeah. Were you on board when it was Atlas Gold? Yeah, I just started and yeah. David was making the, the transition. Right. He's just got such a, an incredible entrepreneurial spirit, David. That's, yes. that's, his, that's an, a critical strength for David. He's, in, he's an amazing kind of thinker. And actually, when I reflect on having you know, known David through those university and post-university years, the bit that I, I was always going to give him credit for was being a really great salesman. Right. And, and there was no, I don't think there was any misunderstanding about that. But what I learned in the period of time that I worked with David was that he's also a really great strategic thinker. And it was his strategy, let's find these iron ore resources that are within trucking distance of Port Hedland and we'll solve for the port and yes. make a business. And he was able to, you know, to build that premise and then sell around it. And that's the bit that I learned from David about how strong that sort of strategic sort of thinking was. Yes. With a healthy dose of sales, you know, sort of backing it up. Yes. So as you say, you get up to around the 15 million tonnes per annum. Now, that's not easy to get to that point. But to be able to negotiate off-take agreements, did you find yourself, because at the period of time then, you've gone from that role in Chief Development Officer through to MD, our Managing Director in 2012, a role you held until 2015. Did you find yourself active in the negotiation phase of these off-take agreements? And did you find yourself learning so much about that part of the business? Oh, definitely learning, but I actually wasn't the key guy. No, right. the, the exec team at Atlas was really stable over the journey. So myself, David, Mark Hancock, and then a, a little bit later on, Jeremy Sinclair. And it was really Mark that built up the key relationships through principally China. Yes. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to, to be exposed to the work that Mark had done, not necessarily intimately involved, but nonetheless exposed to it. And then, of course, lots of trips to China. Yes. Uh, learning a lot about what it means to do business with them and getting culturally attuned to, to what happens in China with business. 
which would have been a, a massive experience that's probably held you in good stead in your current role. Yeah, not too true, Tim. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Yeah, I think a lot of valuable lessons learned about the vagaries of the China market and what's going to make it work versus what won't. And yeah, I agree. I think that's helped in the Pilbara development story as well. One of the interesting parts of your time at Atlas was the volatility in the iron ore markets. Uh, and and you can't help but draw comparisons with the lithium market as well. But if we could just start with the ups and downs of the iron ore price through your time and having to manage that. Yeah. What a great challenge or what doesn't break you makes you stronger, so to speak. Could you give us a little bit of an insight into that, Ken, and how that unfolded and, and what you learned? Yeah, it takes a really resilient team to deal with the highs and the lows. And yeah, I mentioned earlier that the key exec at, at Atlas was really, really stable. Yes. Um, the whole journey. And I've been fortunate enough, it's been the same story at Pilbara Minerals. And I think when you're on that ride together, it is easier to ride the bumps. And you've got people that you can bounce off that are living, you know, the same experience. And that stability, I think, is one of the keys, you know, to the highs and the lows. And at Atlas, oh, yeah, we were tested, well, really significantly twice, actually, because the first one was the the GFC, just as we were ready to hit the go button in production. The second in the collapse of the iron ore price, sort of 2013, 2014, 2015. So, yeah, they were both painful periods, but really very, very ultimately proud actually of what the team achieved because particularly in my time at Atlas it it almost would have been easier to close the doors but the attitude of the entire team was not we can do this we can ride it out and we can save the furniture yes and yeah as much as the restructure was painful the doors weren't closed and you can see now those assets are incredibly valuable. You yes. know, they're, they're part of a, you know, obviously a much bigger portfolio in the Hancock stable, but nonetheless pretty important mines in the Pilbara these days. So, yeah, you know, lots of hard-won lessons, I think, out of it all, Tim, but in the end, you know, valuable for the purpose of where you get to. And I, and I guess, yeah, that experience has played pretty well into the Pilbara development experience as well. Well, it sounds to me like you've really embraced the value of a quality team you can rely on. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, Tim. Yes. In the last 15 years involved in the junior and and mid-tier scene as companies have grown, I've worked with some amazing people. And I think the contributions that have been made to see companies through tough periods, but equally to take advantage of the other side, has just been fantastic. And I keep coming back to being lucky, Tim. Honestly, I reckon I have been lucky throughout my career with respect to the people that I've worked with. Yeah, I can't really say there's any one time where I've thought, I really don't want to be in amongst this team. You know, it just hasn't been like that. Yeah, maybe that's a function of the type of people that work in mining. and, And there is a level of camaraderie that emerges when you're in these relatively small teams. Yes. It's great to be a part of it. Well, it's almost like you hit the trenches and you have to back each other in. Yeah, especially at Pilbara Minerals, that's been a really important part of our story about the toughing out that period of incredibly low pricing, actually. A couple of our peers went broke and in a really tough time, but we all held the faith. We still knew we were in the right industry. It's just one of those situations where you've got to literally tough it out. And I'm pleased to say that's happened in spades. You know, know, where the industry's got to is probably well ahead of where we might have expected it to be at this time. 
it's an interesting way to approach going into a company like Pilbara with the background that you had with Atlas. As I say, it's almost like a blueprint where you start with iron ore, with David, and you start this process of building a company and you finding the offtake, finding the market, getting to the point where you're relying a little bit on the iron ore price and it's fluctuating and it ends up hurting you in, in patches, but you come out the other side. Yeah. There's a bit about the Pilbara in there too, Tim. The Pilbara is an amazing place to work and to build mines. Most Australians, let alone West Australians, don't appreciate how valuable the Pilbara is. It's an incredible place. And not just because there's a lot of minerals in the ground. It's also about the accessibility of infrastructure, the relative sophistication of traditional owner groups and their ability to work with mining companies. The communities more broadly, so communities in Port Hedland, Caratha, and their em- embracing of the mining industry as a key contributor. All those things make for an incredible environment to build a mine. I met with a key executive of Tianqi early in the development of Pilbara Minerals, and I said to him, I reckon we can have this mine in production by about 2018. I actually said to him early 2018. And at that stage, that was maybe 2016, mid-2016. And he literally laughed at me. <laughs> he did. He just he burst into laughter and said, Ken, come on, you know, you're kidding yourself. That's your sales pitch. But I had the faith because of all the things that I thought were going to work in our favour. So, so the Pilbara being one, just an incredible place to be building a mine, to get approvals, to work with native title groups. To raise the money, at that stage I was naively confident that we were not going to have any particular drama about raising the money for a new lithium mine. And as it turned out, we put our first ship out in September 2018. Now, there's not many places where you can do that around the world. Look, I'm glad you brought that up about the Pilbara because, I mean, you've literally jumped the highway from Atlas to to Pilbara, haven't (laughs) you? You can stand at the top of the hill at (laughs) Pilgangora and you can see, you know, Wajina where we had a mine and you can see Abydos where we had a mine. Yeah, it's incredible how it's worked out. Just to keep the flow going, you've kicked off with Pilbara in 2016 and my look at the stock price at that point was about three and a half cents, Yeah, I, thereabouts. I first met with the directors in the middle of 2015 or say, say August, September 2015 and yeah, the share price, yeah, I think you're probably right. Let's uh, maybe sub, sub 10 cents. Sort there, of thereabouts, yeah, yeah. yeah, roughly. And Neil Biddle said to me, oh man, this is incredible what's going on. You've got to go and have a look at what's happening in China. There is a lithium boom coming. And he was really, really passionate about it. And he went on to say, Pilgangor is pretty incredible. So I went away and, you know, did my homework and it was hard to disagree with him. Now, I can't say I really knew a whole heap about lithium raw materials, but I had faith in Pilgangora. I yes. thought the geology there was going to support, you know, a big resource and... I thought that was the premise by which you go in and, you know, you spend a couple of years exploring and maybe one day there's a mine. But no sooner had I signed up, so I signed up in December 2015, you know, all hell started to break loose. Elon Musk was was hitting the front pages and the Model 3, you know, release was out and price started to run quite hard. So imperative to get the project underway all of a sudden went from something that might be developed in you know three to five years it's got to be done in two years you know that was kind of what we were faced with but it was a challenge that I thought was well worth the effort and managed to convince a few of people that I've known and worked with and peers to get in amongst it and come along for the ride the rest is history so you you mentioned that you managed to start producing in 2018 Mm. 
Really? You did your first drill hole and then you're under into production in under four years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty incredible, yeah. yeah. And as I said, you know, there's very few places around the world where you can do that, but the Pilbara is one of them. So Pilbara is now one of the world's leading lithium raw materials suppliers with a portfolio of growth options to execute as the demand for battery raw materials increases. It's got a market cap of in excess of $7 billion. It's positioned in the ASX 200 and the stock price is currently, as we meet today, over $3. It's been a phenomenal journey. Tell me, how have you gone with, it was really a race to the gate. When you talk about that time of the lithium boom, when you talk about Tesla and that emerging boom that was, you just alluded to, that race to the gate in terms of you had other competitors, but you wanted to be ahead of the game. Am I on the right track there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, the windows open in the junior and the mid-tier scene, the windows open to raise money relatively rarely. Now, it just so happens we're in a bit of an incredible market at the moment, but obviously it's not always like that. You know, the implication that emerges is then you have to be ready to match your development to that cycle where you can actually raise the money. And at that stage, we had no idea how how long that window was really going to last. So it was all hands to the pump to get through the you know, the drilling, the engineering, the test work with a view to demonstrating that you've got a, a valid development model and then matching that to a fundraising in support of it. And yeah, that window, well, in the scheme of things, it was relatively short. So in the period from, you know, 2016 through to about the middle of 2018, you could get away with that, but yes. then beyond probably not because pricing had started to turn and, and the market was on the way. So yeah, it's one of those situations where you've just got to move quickly and have a you know deeply integrated kind of board and management dynamic that supports you know rapid development and you know sometimes the compromise that comes with that or realizing the opportunity that comes with that. So yeah, we've had all that work for us at Pilbara and very supportive board and Tony Keenan is a fantastic chairman who gets the you know the nature of markets and, and fundamentally how the mining industry works and, and he's been incredibly supportive of our team over the years. An essential part of that is your customers. So you do note that your customers are included some fairly, I mean, the Great Wall Motor Company, yep. Gangfeng Lithium, General Lithium, POSCO, which we'll get to. Do you want to explain a little bit about how these offtake agreements eventuated and I just wanted to come back a little bit to that Atlas experience and did that come naturally to you in terms of you realised you needed a customer base to grow this mine, to grow this business, you needed the offtakes done. Did that come easy? No and we were again forging a bit of a new path because there had only ever really been one other mine of significance and that was Greenbushes yes. in Western Australia. So so we were developing a new model, really, for delivery of additional lithium raw materials, and in particular to China. So yeah, there's no doubt the experience from Atlas has served us well, if you like, in respect of Pilbara's development. And yes, the customers in China are really important, and that means lots of trips there. Yes. And often to the back blocks, lots of drinking multi <laughs> and, and you don't want to get stuck in one of those back blocks in the west of China on a Friday or a Saturday night. That's not a, not a good idea, Tim. Don't do that. Done that far too many times. Yeah, lots of lunches and getting to know them and understanding their business and demonstrating what you think you can achieve and, of course, ultimately, hopefully delivering on that. The other thing that we've worked on really hard with customers is to find a better match between the pricing dynamic and how that plays to your mine development and or 
support for your shareholders and that's something else that we've worked really, really hard on. And I've been pleasantly surprised actually. The customers in China are in their own way, they're very flexible. Right. And I think the key to those longer standing relationships is demonstrating a level of flexibility yourself. And ultimately, you hope it works two ways. And I'm pleased to say that that has pretty much been the case. We, you know, we've had tough times with customers. There's no two ways about it. But in the current environment where everybody's you know, soliciting more lithium raw material, they've also demonstrated a level of flexibility as to what they're prepared to pay. Yes. So, so I think it does work both ways. And some of that comes through having those longer standing relationships and all those nights drinking with them, Tim. Which it's been some hard, hard-earned ground, I'm sure. Yeah, not easy. And, and yeah, it, t- it takes some time to build up those relationships. So through this period, if I just, again, move a little bit to the left, how have you been able to balance that travel and going to the Pilbara and that sort of thing with, with Fiona and the kids? And have they done the odd trip up to the Pilbara with you? Yeah, they have. It's fair to say that at different times, Tim, I'm, I'm not the husband or the father of the year. <laughs> That's definitely been the case, and in particular in the times that I've been involved in the publicly listed sort of company life, that is really demanding. But the family has also been really understanding, and also they demonstrate a, a level of you know, faith and, and or you know, support for the work that's done because, well, firstly, they understand the value in the work. I guess that's, that's one of the important things. But it's also been a passion too, so I think they've been prepared to support you know, what you're passionate about. Yes. And, and that's definitely been the case over the years, and, and in particular with Atlas and, and Pilbara. Yeah. Well, for children that are growing up, there are few topics that probably resonate more than the words like decarbonisation, battery, electric vehicles, where's the world going, fossil fuels versus the alternatives, green energy. And when you look at what you're doing now and the customers and the marketplaces you might be looking at in the UK and Europe and China which involve electrical vehicles and involve energy storage. It must be quite satisfying for you that you're right at the forefront. How does that resonate with you? You'll have upcoming students coming out of the School of Mines, a place that's very dear to you. You'll have others that are learning all about this space and you're here producing one of the key ingredients. What do you think about that? Yeah, I'm really passionate about this leading edge that's emerging in mining that's now part of the change you know and we can legitimately say hand on heart we are contributing to the solution so the battery raw materials are now the enabler of the electrification of everything which in turn supports the application of renewable energy this is a big change and it's a big change culturally i think for the mining industry it represents a huge opportunity to attract the next generation of sophisticated kind of skills and in every regard, whether it's the, you know, the professionals, the, the instrument techs, the fitters, the mechanical guys, it's all now part of solving for decarbonising the global economy. It's such a big ticket, in my view, to inspire people to want to join the mining industry in a way that they may not have been inspired historically. As much as we might hate it, we have been kind of tarred with the brush that says you're part of the problem. Yes. And I, I feel like we can now sort of you know, legitimately push back on that and say, no, 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 we are the solution now to decarbonising the global economy. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is what's being wrought on the industry itself in mining. 
And there is really big manifest change going on. It's incredible, Tim. And I think about, you know, what the Brains Trust must be doing in sort of BHB boardroom or the Rio boardroom or the Anglo-American boardroom, you know, big global miners who look at their portfolio and go, we're in the wrong commodities now. And I, I reckon it's starting to dawn on them that this is not a fly-by-night kind of change. And what it means is that they're going to have to change. You know, I love that aspect because... I think it's important. I think it's important they do change. There will be, you know, protesters out the front of the AGM until they do. Yes. So for Pilbara, you know, little old Pilbara, you know, small fish in the pond to be sort of relatively speaking at the leading edge of that change, I think is fantastic. And I'm really proud of what the team's done to get to this point. It's, yeah, it's incredible. We've built a big mine, big part of the global supply base, got plenty of growth in front of it. And yeah, I'm really proud of how hard the team's worked to make that happen. Oh, look, congratulations, Ken. It's a phenomenal story. I think going along with that too, though, when you look at the way that lithium's being embraced, one of the questions I had for you is the advancement of the pricing model of how you sell it. I'm alluding to the battery metal material exchange and how that influenced the price. Could you give us a little bit of an insight into that and how Pilbara deals with it? Yeah. We, you know, fantastic exec at, at Pilbara Minerals and, and we, as much as we all work hard, we also spend a lot of time joking. And uh, one of the jokes that sort of got thrown around over the years was to say, oh, geez, we, you know, we've just got to find a better way to sell this spodumane. You know, why don't, we, why don't we set up eBay for spodumane? You know, and, and we'd sort of joke about it and you know, banter backwards and forwards. And, and we came to the conclusion early last year, as much as the market was still pretty tough, we could see an opportunity emerging for a whole raft of new buyers coming to market. And again, maybe this is a bit of a touch point as it relates to this experience in China. I think being attuned to the way the market is developing in China is a really important part of understanding how you position the business. Yes. And we could see the number of buyers growing you know, substantially. So when I first went to China in early 2016 for lithium, you, you go and meet with five people and that was it. Now we have 30 buyers screened for participation in battery materials exchange. So going from you know, five buyers to 30 buyers is a really material change in the market. That's all happened in the space of five years. Yeah. So our idea was to achieve a couple of aims. The first was to create more transparency for a pricing outcome. And we felt that there was a reasonable chance that was going to be quite different to the historical norm, but basically better, better for the miner. That was part one. Part two was just having an efficient channel to access those 30 buyers. You can't go and meet with them and you can't call them all you know, necessarily every day. So, right. so how do you engage with them? And, and that's where the Battery Materials Exchange, as developed by GLX Digital here in Perth, is a fantastic tool to efficiently engage with the customer base. And then lastly, it's a bit about a portfolio approach. If the longer standing, deeper relationships with customers, they're really important for part of the business, but you don't need them for all of the business. Right. So the bit that's left over is the bit that's really great to test, you know, the other buyers. The BMX. Exactly. Yeah, and determine are they going to become a long-standing customer, maybe, or, uh, you know, you might achieve a higher price. There's lots of reasons why you want to keep a relationship with them as well. Yeah, so that all worked for us, and there'll be a lot more done with that during the course of this year. It's very transparent in terms of seeing where the demand lies. And when you look at, say, for example, this inaugural on online auction, your first auction had 62 online bids yeah. from 17 independent buyers through a three-hour auction window. Yeah. 
The second one had 48 online bids from 13 independent buyers during a two-hour auction window. And the third one, where you had to put a 10% deposit up front, 25 online bids from eight independent buyers during a 45-minute auction window. I mean, it gives you a very good, transparent insight into the marketplace in which you're dealing with. And that's excluding your current clients. It's a very young industry, Tim. The lithium raw material scene is really just in its infancy. As much as Greenbushes has delivered lithium to China for 25 years, that was it. They were the only player. And all of a sudden, in the space of five years, the industry's come from nowhere. Demand has grown extraordinarily quickly and, in our view, will continue to. But by implication, the sales relationships, the methods of sale, the pricing, discovery, it's all very new. Yes. That represents huge opportunity, I think, and probably lots more value to be created if you're part of that new development of the supply chain, the new pricing models. Yeah, that's why it's just been such a boon for us to, to be a part of it, you know, one of the early players. When you look at these actual online bids, are they coming from all over the world? Not quite, mostly China. Right, yep. yep. China being the, the key market up to this time. Yes, I noted in your presentation, your AGM presentation, that the UK and Europe is a target market. Yeah, they're the next big mover after China in the EV world. They're both... Well, Europe especially in the last couple of years, that's one of the main reasons why in this sort of post-COVID world we've seen another wave of demand come through. Europe's genuinely switched on to the EV story. And and in some markets, Germany and the UK, one third of the cars being sold, there are EVs. So, yeah, it's really, consumers are into it. Ken, when you look at the pricing, and we'll move on from pricing in a minute, but I was just interested, when you saw what happened with the iron ore price with Atlas, and then it came off significantly and you've seen it with the lithium price now you're seeing another strong period of time you're clearly attuned to another potential fall down in that price but how do you set up your business for that how are you prepared for a potential saturation of supply for example yep what are you looking at in that regard yeah uh, look it's uh, it's going to sound like the old adages i guess yeah balance sheet strength is is a key force The ability to invest in the business at the right time with a view to lowering your cost is equally important. And that's one of the things that definitely got us through the the last cycle. Yes. Combination of plant operating expertise and taking advantage of the learning that you you made in those first couple of years of production and and disciplined sort of operating parameters. And then, again, I sort of come back to the team. Yeah, a well-grounded team and, and a deeply integrated team is really, really important to the development of any company and arguably especially in the, in the junior, in the mid-tier, you know, mid-tier if you're trying to grow. I feel like there's, there's a test for every company at some point in time in the cycle that says, how good are you as a team? And some companies you know, will get there and some companies won't. And, and there'll be a raft of reasons as to why it doesn't work. But I think one of them is the ability to be deeply integrated, working together, and especially that dynamic between the board and management. Right. And in, in, in ASX-listed companies, I suspect there's not that many really good examples where there is a really deep level of integration between the board and management. Quite often there's a roadblock in management about you know, an MD that's you know, protecting his patch or he's filtering information to go through to the board and, and ultimately you know, that'll either be the demise of the company or, or the demise of the individual. And then 
the flip side is a board that might be either too divorced from the organisation, but potentially even the other way around, they're trying to run the company. So, so all of those dynamics I've learned are, are really, really sensitive and a key determinant of the company's success, and especially during those times of stress and pressure. Yeah, I feel like I've, I've been you know, very lucky to have been involved in companies in the last 15 years where the board and management dynamic has been healthy and it's been strong and it's been transparent and the flow of information has been you know, healthy in both directions. Yes. And that is a key to taking advantage of the good times but equally surviving the bad times. Really great insight. Just want to quickly talk about the electrical vehicle and energy storage segment globally. You're in a unique position. You get to see it firsthand. Could you just give us a bit of an insight into the growth expectations in this area? I mean, from someone who is active on the roads, there seems to be a lot more Teslas around, for example. But the proliferation of electrical vehicles globally and the size of the market that you're seeing. Yep. Could you just give us a little bit of an insight? Tesla is one example, but they're all migrating towards that winning post. Yeah. This is not meant to be politically motivated in the slightest, Tim, but I remember poor old Bill Shorten got lambasted during the election campaign maybe two years ago. No more. must have been three years ago. And he said that 50% of the cars in Australia will be EVs in 2030. And he got howled down. Right. And I thought, wow, that's unfair because actually it'll be much higher than that. And the key here is understanding the nature of the change. In Australia, we, in the scheme of things, have had relatively little exposure to EVs. But in certain markets around the world, EVs are a really big story. And they're already part of a consumer's kind of natural selection. China's a good example. And then more recently, Germany and the UK have gone through one third of sales now being EVs. So really, certain markets around the world, people are already onto it. I've seen the opportunity in in the EV and actually my personal view is they're a better car anyway. So eventually we'll get with the program. Uh, Now people will say, oh, but what about, you know, the long ranges that we drive in Australia and what happens when I turn up and can't charge and all that sort of stuff? Well, I think, you know, just think about that sort of network in the same way that you think about a mobile phone now. There wasn't that many mobile phone towers, you know, 10 years ago, but now you go everywhere in Australia, there's mobile phone it's coverage. Yes. You know, it's, it's universal. Yes. Well, a very similar model is going to unfold with respect to car charging and it's going to become a natural part of our kind of user experience. It's just that we don't see it today, but it's coming, I can assure you, and it's going to be a big part of our future. Energy storage, similar dynamic underway, but actually one of the good things here in Australia is we're already well down the path with solar penetration. The next natural evolution is for those people with solar panels to install a battery, and we're getting closer and closer to that price point where the battery on the side of the house makes is going to make a lot of sense. Yes. And then at that time, everybody wants to do it, and its adoption will be very quick because it'll be such a natural thing to do to support the grid to support the, you know, the power bill at home and take advantage of all that solar that we've already installed. This is one example where Australia is actually leading the world. And with those batteries, though, who's going to produce them? Who's going to manufacture them? Are they going to be done locally or are they going to be in overseas? I often get asked this question, Tim, and I, I hope it doesn't sound disappointing, but it's difficult for Australia to be a successful battery manufacturer. And and in fact, I'd go one step further and argue we we actively don't want to do it. Um, And that's because it's a volume game. 
cell manufacturing. That's not, and I don't, and manufacturing itself, I don't think is our natural competitive advantage. However, you come one step back from a battery and you think about the value-added chemicals that go into the battery and we have outstanding credentials there. We've got all the natural resources in the world. We've got all the expertise and engineering and mechanical and chemical expertise. It's all here on tap. We have some fantastic locations to build such facilities, and Kwinana is a, you know, probably a globally recognised example, really good place for a chemical hub. For all those reasons, I think that's where we should intensively focus our efforts. And the good news is it's actually already happening. Naturally, there is investment going into this value-added sort of chemicals world, and I'm sure there's more to come. That would then be a logical place to come in and talk about your JV with POSCO. Yeah, yeah. value-adding products from Pilgangora is going to be a big part of Pilbara's future. I've no yes. doubt about that. POSCO relationship is, is just one example. So our logic there is to have the spodumene, you know, leave the Pilbara, go to South Korea and be value-added through a joint chemical facility with POSCO. Unfortunately, that chemical facility is it's very difficult to, to build that competitively in Port Hedland or at the mine, but in certain places in South Korea, POSCO's found uh, Guanyang in South Korea is a great place to build such a facility. So we'll deliver them the spodumene and then participate in the value-added product and, and they'll produce the battery-grade lithium hydroxide. Going back one step, we, we also think there's a huge opportunity in a value-added product. It's just not a fine chemical. We think about the manufacturing of industrial lithium salts. Yes. We call it the midstream product. Yeah. And we think that's a really important development for the industry. Again, going back to that point that the industry is young and spodumene may not be the right answer to be shipping all the way around the world. It's only got 6% lithia in it. The rest of it's waste. We think you can get rid of that right waste at the mine and ship a much higher lithia credit to direct to European markets, to North American markets. So there's some great opportunities there. Fascinating. I've heard that you're quite an avid windsurfer. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I feel like a dinosaur out there these days, mate, <laughs> with, all the, with all the kites around me. But I love it. Yeah, real yeah. passion for it, Tim. And I had a big gap in between, you know, in that period of time where I haven't been father of the year. Too much work, not enough time, and got back into it in the last four or five years and yeah, really enjoy it. Yeah. So, Ken, that's a good point to talk about your future. This week you've announced that you're intending to depart Pilgrim Minerals and stand down from your role as Managing Director and CEO. This must have been a decision that wasn't made lightly. How are you feeling about it and the legacy you're left behind? Yeah, I reckon difficult decision to ultimately come to this conclusion because Pilbara Minerals and and actually the whole sort of executive kind of game has been a really sort of important part of my life in the last 15 years and you know to call time and say I really need to dedicate some time elsewhere is a difficult conclusion to draw but Tim I feel comfortable about the decision and I think the support that's emerged, you know, this week would indicate that most people are okay with it. And that part of it makes me happy, you know, the idea that I think it is the right time and a stable time for Pilbara Minerals to, to make a transition for a new CEO to see the opportunity in the current market and the strong balance sheet at Pilbara Minerals and the healthy cash flow from operations. So whilst it might be the case that there's never a good time, I reckon... This time 
is about as good as it gets. Well, you've certainly achieved a lot. And I think just judging from our conversations and the observations that have been made this week, which have been, I must say, very complimentary. You know, the observations I've taken out of our chat about you, Ken, hard worker, you've always encouraged safety and safe hands, safe pair of hands. You've provided certainty and comfort. You're obviously a great people person. You're definitely a team man. You've shown over time you've been a savvy negotiator. And when you look at the feedback you have received, a genuine good bloke. I had to look at the release from Pilbara and I just had to look at, in particular, Chairman Tony Kiernan's remarks. Ken has been a wonderful, dedicated and inspirational leader who has worked tirelessly to help build the company into what it is today a leading ASX 100 battery raw materials company with a truly exciting future, which I would say is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's humbling, Tim. And from someone yeah, I have so much respect for, and there'll be many reasons to miss Pilbara, but Tony will absolutely be one of them. A formidable chairman, a guy who has such deep-rooted commercial kind of nouse and and savvy and gets the importance of the interaction of the board with management and and vice versa i've learned so much from tony and and if ever i was lucky enough to 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 be a chairman of a publicly listed company i'd be modeling a lot of my behaviors on on exactly what tony has shown to me yeah incredible Well, Ken, look, again, thanks a lot for your time today. You've squeezed us in and you are very busy. But on behalf of Euros Hartleys, we do want to wish you all the best and particularly all the best in your new phase of life. Thanks again, Ken. Fantastic, Tim. Thanks. And thanks to to Euros Hartley for all the support over the years. Much, much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.